Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Our Father and our King, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that we can sing songs that proclaim what Christ has done through his blood shed on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. God, we thank you that we can have life in you today. We thank you, God, that you are our Savior, you are our Lord, and you are our life. And we pray, God, as we open Colossians chapter 2, that you would further teach us what it means to walk with you daily, to learn to hear your voice, to follow in faithful obedience. And God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon the truth that you have given us in your word today. We bless you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 2. Here's our brief uh, recap. So we've been talking about Colossians. We've been talking about what Paul is doing. He's writing a letter to a small congregation in, in what is now modern-day Turkey. It's Asia Minor in the ancient period. And it was a part of the Roman colonies that were there. Colossae used to be a very important city. And over the time between the latter part of the last, um, like beginning, uh, like the last hundred years before the time of Christ, it was really popular and important. And then it gradually became less and less and less and less and less important. Enter into the scene, uh, the beginning you know, of the time of Jesus, you're, you're around the first couple decades of that new millennium, and you have um, Colossae being a small city. But eventually, through the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel finds its way to Colossae. And a small church is formed out of a bunch of formerly pagan people. People who largely did not know God. They worshipped a multiplicity of gods. <coughs> they served their own interests. They knew about some of the Jewish uh, influence, of course, within the area. There's probably some Jewish background believers and probably some, some non-Jewish background believers in this small community. But there are small house church. Some have suggested that it's 30 to 45 people to whom Paul is writing. Perhaps one of the smallest, what, what we would maybe look at as least significant congregations because they didn't have the might and the power of the Jerusalem church or the Antioch church or the Ephesian church, but there are people who God wanted to reveal himself to. And Paul goes to great lengths to say, I want to show you who Jesus is because he wants them to grasp a glimpse of how much Jesus has loved them to save them, to redeem them, to call them to himself, and then to place his life inside of theirs. Because while they're a small church, they're not small from God's perspective. God looks at them and he goes, wow, you are my sons and my daughters. And he relishes his relationship with them. But Paul is concerned and he wants them to know who has 
has saved them, who this Jesus is. And he wants them to know because of what Jesus has done in your life, here's who you are. And then he wants to tell them, walk in him. And he wants to tell them that because the life of a Christian is not a, a static existence. It's not, a, okay, now I'm saved and now whatever. It's a call to walk with a Savior. Now, when you are saved, you are secure, you are free, you are forgiven. All these things become positionally true. But God has given you and I, and he gave the Colossian believers of that time an incredible gift. His spirit to walk with them. And so he invites them daily into this walk with Christ. And he wants them to know this because they're going to be tempted to believe different lies that the culture is going to tell them. So, here's who Jesus is. Walk in him in light of who you are, the loved, the rescued, the, per the people who know his will, the people who are forgiven, the people who can be thankful, those who can rejoice in suffering, those who are filled by the fullness of God in Jesus Christ, who have everything they need in him. Now, walk with Christ. That's his invitation to them. And we said last week, I shared this quote with you. Get my clicker on here. I shared this quote with you <coughs> where Dr. Randy Smith says, the Christian life is the conscious act of knowing, loving, and inviting Jesus into the course of our life, allowing him to lead us through the day. This is what these believers are being invited into, this daily walking with Jesus. But Paul has some concerns because while this is what they're called into and they're given everything in the fullness of Christ in them, they have different um, voices and messages from the culture and the surrounding area that want to try to take them captive. And we looked at one of these last week. Verse 4 says, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. A couple of verses later in verse 8, we find this first warning. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based upon human tradition and the elemental forces of the world. So he wants them to be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Because he doesn't want tradition to take place in the center stage with their walk with God. And he also wants them to know that the elemental forces of the world, all the things that are, that are of the world's powers, have no hold on them and they don't have have to live according to those things because of who they are in Christ. They're new, they're free, they're forgiven. He wants them to walk in light of who they are. Now we come to today's passage, and we're going to look at a couple of different warnings, additional warnings that Paul gives these believers in our passage today. So, I want to invite you to please rise in spirit or in body for the reading of the scripture this morning as we finish out reading Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to the end. <clears throat> Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He does not hold on to the head from whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons develops with growth from God. 
if you died or since you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of the world? Why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men. Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Father, thank you for these words. Spirit, be our teacher this morning as we seek to understand and to live our life with you today. We thank you for all that we have in the fullness of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In these first uh, couple of verses, in verses um, 16 and 17, we're going to see this next warning that Paul gives the Colossians. And the warning comes uh, with regard to don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink, a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Now, when the ancient hearers heard this, what they understood was things like feasts. What they understood were things like the celebration of a new moon or, or the blowing that would exist within the Jewish community. Now, now notice what it says here. He says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to it. He's not saying that these things are bad. And, and of course, in the, in the pagan world, they would have other types of feasts and they would have other types of celebrations. And those may or may not necessarily be bad. What he's saying is he says, don't let anyone judge you with regard to these things. So it seems to be that one of the things that Paul is concerned about is that the believers in Colossae are being told, don't you know that in order to be this, you have to do this. And what's happened is that the, <clears throat> the symbols that God had given, even some of his people, the Jewish people, have become more important than the actual substance of who the Messiah is. It's kind of like putting the cart before the horse. And what they've jumped into is, is judging. Now the word here for judge in Greek is the word krino, and it means to criticize, to find fault with, or to condemn. So what's going on is, is there's some people within the community saying, I'm finding fault with you. I'm condemning you because you're not doing things according to the way I think you should do them. Don't you know this is the way that we do that? And, and they're elevating certain elements above the substance. And the reason we, we can make this argument is because right after this, Paul says these, talking about things like a feast or a new moon celebration or other types of religious practice, these, Paul says, are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is the Messiah. The substance is the Messiah. And people have entered into criticizing and finding fault because what they're doing is somehow not in the way that they thought it should go or the, the emphasis that they should be given. Now, when he talks about here, these are shadows. I want to show you a shadow right now. And I want you to tell me, this is, this is participation. If you can tell me what this is when you see it. Anybody know? Camels, awesome, yeah. I tried to pick a fairly easy one. There's actually a really cool photo 
<clears throat> of a camel that I can't show you for copyright reasons, but it's an incredible photo where it's taken like aerially and you see this big shadow of a camel. And if you look really closely on this photo, you see like the long part of a camel because it's looking straight down. But what you see is the shadow. Now, if you were to look at the shadow of something, the shadow gives you an idea of what it is. It, it tells me, oh, hey, there's probably a couple of camels here, and we know that they're kind of going through the desert. Now, if I were to show you a picture of this, it's a very different experience. I took this while on a camel in the Middle East. It's very different to look at a camel like this and then to be behind the head of a camel who's three feet, you know, like whose face is three feet away from you. And if you get on those things and you take a ride, like the back legs come up, the front legs come up, you're going left, you're going right, you're going forward, you're going back. You're wondering if you're going to fall over. And then we started heading out kind of into the desert area and, and our guide who was with us, he said, we'll see you next year. And I was like, that's funny. Not really. Um, <clears throat> but the experience of a camel is very different between this and this. Right? This is like lived out experience. You get off the camel and you're like, whoa, I'm not going to walk right for the next couple days. It, that is, if you didn't fall off the camel, like is probably pretty easy to do. What Paul is suggesting here is he says, the substance is what matters most. Now the shadow serves a purpose. And there's great shadows that God has given to his people throughout the scriptures. Even amazing things like the feast point forward to the Messiah. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, these are the scriptures, talking about the Hebrew scriptures, these are the scriptures that testify concerning me. And so the whole Bible is a story that is pointing us forward and giving us pictures of who Jesus is and what he would do and how he would take what was once broken in the garden and make it right again. When we gather for a Messianic Seder, we, we don't gather out of a legalistic way to, to celebrate that, but we gather to remember what Christ has done. It's a powerful image that God told his people Israel, I want you to celebrate this every year because he wanted to kind of grind into their bones what it meant to be saved and delivered from slavery in Egypt and how he would eventually come in a much greater way to save and deliver his people from a greater enslaver sin. So these symbols and these shadows they many times are very important and they matter. But the problem is, is when we get the shadows before the substance, we miss the point of why the shadow is there. And what happened, sorry, let me readjust this so you don't hear that scratching so much. <clears throat> when we get the substance first, all the other things fall in proper line. And when we get the substance first, there's no need to criticize or look down upon because the substance is first. And Paul's concerned that these believers would not, would not have the substance as being the primary thing. <coughs> and I want you to understand how important this was for this first century church. Likely in this area, as I've said before, there's Jewish background believers, there's Gentile background believers. You have people who grew up within a religious matrix where certain kinds of food were not eaten, they kept kosher, they kept certain days, all in accordance with what God had told them, right? They had also added a bunch of Pharisaic legalistic things that went beyond scripture, that happened too, and, and Jesus kind of talks about that when he 
tells the Pharisees in the passage we read last week, you hypocrites, you've missed the point. You've added traditions of men to the things I've given you, and and you've placed the things that you think are more important, more important than the things that matter to me, namely your heart. Because at the heart of all of these celebrations and remembrances and feasts is where is my heart at? And so Jesus is... um, Engages with that with these, um, with the Pharisees and the leaders of his day. But just imagine how difficult something simple like a potluck would be in the first century. What do you bring? If you bring pork, you offend your Jewish background believer, right? And if you bring something else, your Gentile background believer is going, what do I do with this? This is not how I eat. This is not... The way that we gather. This is not the way that we dress. How does a new community formed in Messiah, in, in the blood of Jesus and his resurrection, pull together n- numerous people from numerous different backgrounds within the world? And one of the key principles is focus on the substance, not the shadows. Focus on the substance, not the shadows. If you want to look for some further study to talk about how they actually went about doing this, Acts 15 would be a great study for later. You'll find there that this question pops up and Paul goes back to a Jerusalem council, the Jerusalem council of leaders, including James, the brother of Jesus, um, and Peter, and a whole bunch of people are there. They say, here are the things for the people of God that we must have all together in order to keep a unity within the body. Um, you can go check that out some point in time later today. But what, what matters <clears throat> is that at the center of all this, Jesus is first and foremost front and center. And when Jesus isn't first and foremost front and center, um, life gets really, really messy really quickly. Another place you might want to look later today is Romans chapter 14, because that deals with issues related to food and days of worship. And all these things are important. I, I grew up in a tradition that observed Saturday as Sabbath. And practically speaking, my family still takes that day and we try to have that day being different because Sunday is a little bit different day for me and for our family than it is maybe for some of you. And it's good to hit pause and it's good to hit stop. But anything, anything can become legalism. And that's what Paul is attacking here. He's saying, don't make something that I've given as a gift, or don't take something of the culture, don't take something of your Christian faith and make it a legalistic practice. Because when you make it legalism, when you start to define who you are by what you do, what you end up doing, what you end up doing is you focus on the shadows and not the substance. The substance, he says, is the Messiah. First, foremost, and always. He's going to continue this conversation. He's going to go into the second warning here in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you or let no one rob you or cheat you out of your prize, you could translate it, insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. He says, he does not hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from God. So he begins this by saying, let no one disqualify you, And he's basically saying, by delighting in their humility, rather, hold on to the head of the body. 
Because what's going on here is that someone or some ones in verses 18 and 19 are wanting to rob the people of the prize that they have in Messiah, or at least the experience of the prize that they have in Messiah, by insisting on ascetic practices. This word's going to come up a little bit later. What he's talking about here is he's, he's talking about um, practices that have a, a severe treatment of the body. The last verse of the chapter we'll talk about. Practices that can, that can be based in humility, but really what he's focusing on here is that there is a false humility by saying, oh, don't you know I fast every day of the week, every morning I fast. Don't you fast? Or don't you know that I observe this or I keep this or I don't do this. And what's being lifted above the finished work of Christ in their life and the fullness of life that they have in him is here's what I do. You don't do that? Oh, I do that. And it's done in a way to describe a false humility. The other thing that's going on here, and it's kind of interesting, and it's a challenging passage to understand what's going on culturally here, because he talks about insisting on ascetic practices, the worship of angels, and claiming access to a visionary realm. Like, angels in a visionary realm? It, It seems to be... It seems to be referencing one of three things. A reference to Jewish mysticism, a a reference to angel worship, which is seen in some aspects of what is called Phrygian Judaism, or perhaps it's taking an element of this and an element of this, and it's mixing them all together in this one religious thing. But what has taken center stage is, don't you know, this is how I practice my religion. And what has left center stage is, here's who I am in Christ. And here's the freedom I have in Christ. And here's the power I have in Christ. Regardless of how we understand these things. And, and, you know, here's a picture of angel worship from like the first century that's that's there. They they spent time carving this into some stone to try and describe what's going on. Um, With all of this going on. Change my page here. Um, regardless of whatever um, solution is most likely, I want you to notice what Paul's solution is here. With all these things, ascetic practices, worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm, verse 19 says he doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, develops with growth from the Messiah. In other words, similar to what has just been said in verses 16 and 17, they've left the substance, who is the Messiah, and they've gone to secondary things to try to meet their spiritual needs. They've left the substance to go to the shadows, and maybe even beyond the shadows to things that shouldn't have ever been on the screen, (laughs) right? I like what one scholar says. He says, the Colossian believers are called to resist such practices because all promises to them have already been provided through Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. In other words, he's saying spiritual nourishment comes from the head. Go back to Christ for everything you need. Now, this word for head is the word in Greek, um, and it's translated head. It's it's the word kephale, but it can refer to a source of life and power. 
So Paul gives this image, Paul's the main one that actually even describes the church as a body. And he describes the church as a body. We've got all the ligaments and tendons. And there's some parts of the church that are more like a hand and some that are more like a foot and some that are more like a knee and all this kind of stuff. But they all come underneath the head. One writer describes the head this way. He says, It was commonly supposed among the medical writers of Paul's day that the head was the source and center of the life of the body. All that was needed was the proper functioning of the body derived from the head. What's happened is people have gone back to their old practices. They've gone on to their old ways and they haven't grabbed a hold of the head. In the word here, it says that he says, how does he phrase it? He does not hold to the head of the body. The word here for hold means to hold fast to someone. It means to adhere strongly to. It it means in some context to seize or to grasp. This isn't just a, hey, I'm going to hold on to the head. It's this, I'm going to take the head and I'm going to cling to it. Because I know that there's no other place I'm going to get the wisdom and source of power and direction in life for my walk. Rather, there's nowhere else except for the head. And he's telling every one of these believers, wherever they're at, whether they're Jewish background, whether they're Gentile background, hold on to the head. Hold on to the head. And we can go, okay, that, that's, that's a great thing for them to remember to go on to hold on to the head. But it's worth us asking, what are the things we hold on to? When, when it comes to our walk spiritually, what are the things we grasp? Do we grasp some sort of experience? Do we grasp some sort of tradition do we grasp things that we once knew or things that look really good? Or we, we, we may be grasping even at good things. The problem is, is when we grasp at all the shadows, we forget the substance who is Christ. He says, grasp onto the head. And imagine this, if an entire church and an entire group of churches spread across the entire world, the body of Christ, the collective body of Christ, if we grabbed a hold of the head, source of power and authority, and we came under the headship of Jesus in very practical ways in every part of our life, can you imagine how God would use that to further his name? Unfortunately, sometimes our our lives and even lives within churches are more described by, I'm going to grab onto this thing because that's how we always did it. We can't think outside that box or we have to have um, the new stuff because it's new, forgetting maybe something that's old. New, old doesn't matter. What matters is, is it coming? Is the leadership and the direction and, and the p- source of power coming from Christ? Or is it coming through some other way? Think for a moment. Ask yourself, am I holding on to Christ or am I holding on to something else? You could think about this with regard to the area of pride. Do I take pleasure or satisfaction from my achievements Or do I look to Christ to give me the source of power and strength for everything he calls me to do? Do I look to others for their source of achievements? Or do I look to God to be their sufficiency? You could ask, 
Am I critical toward myself or am I critical towards others? Am I trying to produce something of spiritual value in my own strength? Or am I in a place where I go, you know, I've tried that numerous times. And of course, the definition of insanity is doing things over and over again, expecting different results. Um, I've tried this a whole bunch of different ways that I think. How about if we just go back to the Father? And we go back to God himself. We say, God, we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to walk in this. But God, we know you do. We know that you will give us the power and the strength in accordance with your spirit to provide us everything we need for life and godliness today. Do you feel like you're lacking something and you're attempting to work harder to try to meet a need of yours, a felt need or another type of need through some sort of spiritual exercise? Another way to think about this is if you flip the page and you go to Colossians chapter 3 and you look at verses 12 and following, we see kind of markers of the Christian life. Uh, We'll study this in a couple weeks. Um, Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were also called in one body, control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the Messiah, the message of the Messiah, dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A great kind of acid test of Where am I going to for life? Am I going to the head or am I going to something else? Do these qualities here describe my life? Would someone else say that these qualities describe my life? And the degree to which these qualities describe your life reflect the degree to which we go to the head, Jesus himself, to work in and through us to make these qualities possible because these qualities are not possible in our own strength. They're not possible in our own striving, in our own flesh. They're only possible in him. It's a great kind of acid test where I'm at. I was having a conversation with Pastor Tom earlier this week and we were wrestling through a couple different things and, and I found myself with the tendency to just try to, well, what's the next solution? Well, here's option A and here's option B and here's option C and, and, and that's fine. It's all well and good. We got a couple minutes into this conversation and I said, you know what? I think I just need to pray about this because I'm trying to hold on to stuff and I'm trying to control issues and I'm trying to make something happen here that I can't make happen. I'm sure he was already there (laughs) and like, well, let's just pray, but I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to be kind and let him speak his mind here. What would happen if we went to prayer more quickly than to our own solutions? And that became a way of holding on to the head from whom we derive source of power in life. So the first caution is be careful that you don't mistake the shadows for the substance. The substance, Christ is who matters. The second command here is is hold on to the head. Go back to Christ. Again, finally, we come to this last paragraph 
And he says, if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world. <clears throat> now the word here, if, the way mine translates it, can also be translated since. And I think it's a better translation because he's talking to people who have been bought and redeemed and rescued and forgiven through the work of Christ's death and resurrection, right? That's who he's talking to. And he's saying, since you have experienced this new life, you are no longer belonging to the elemental forces of the world. You, you no longer belong to the world, world system. So why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is, being what is destroyed by being used up. They're commands in the doctrines of men. He's saying there's a whole lot of ways that people are going to try to compel you to do what they want you to do. The commands in the doctrines of men. Now, the amazing thing is, is that when we go to the Lord, when we go to Christ as our source, all the things pertaining to life and godliness are, are supplied for us in Christ. And here's maybe a helpful way to think about the numerous commands. We're going to come to some commands in the next chapter of, <clears throat> you know, like husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands and all these kind of things. Children obey your parents in the Lord for this way. All these are commands. But he's talking about legalism here because commands can sometimes be, oh, you missed this, you missed this. Like when we live by a system of legalism, pretty quickly we define our identity. Pretty quickly we define our identity by what we have done. And that's not how God defines our identity. He defines it by who we are in him. And so we have to get that, that order really right to, to make sense of this. And so when we look at some of these laws, it's really easy to say, well, I don't do, I don't do, I do, I do, I don't, I do. And we become so focused on the commands of God that we forget that all the power we need to walk in the fullness of these commands is found in him. Connect yourself to the head. Hold on to the head. Go back to the substance and everything else flows from there. In fact, when we connect ourselves to the head, when we go back to God and we say, God, I know that you have commanded me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, which is what the scripture says to husbands. When I go back to that, I can't do that in my own power. There's only one way, God, I can do that. So what becomes a command, and, and I might be like, love my wife, love my wife, love my wife. You know, it becomes one of these things. You just try to buckle down and get it done. I don't know if you're like that. Sometimes I'm like that in life, just like buckle down and get it done. All these commands of God become promises as we come to God and we say, God, I can't do this. It's almost like he says, I know you can't, but I can do this through you. Will you let me do this through you? And the journey of the Christian life is coming back to God and saying, God, I, I can't do this. But God, you have said and you've promised that you would give me power and that you'd give me strength for everything I need today. And when we look at the Christian life that way, it just flips on its head this idea of I have to be measured by what I do. You can never be measured by what you do because God looks at you if you are in Christ and he says, you're my child. And if you're not in Christ today, he says, I would love for you to be my child. You cannot make your way to God on your own. You cannot save yourself. We cannot save ourselves. And we cannot live the Christian life on our own. The same grace that we needed to receive 
for salvation is the same grace you and I need to receive for every single moment of every single day. Because as Paul says, hold on to the head, the source of life and power. Hold fast, adhere strongly to. That's, that's what he's saying here. And as he comes up to the end of this passage, he says in verse 23, although these have a reputation of wisdom, in other words, these things look good by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body. He says, they are not any value of curbing self-indulgence. They are of no value in curbing your flesh. In other words, the way that you and I battle against our flesh is not, is not ever going to be, or it's never going to be, is probably better way to say that, is never going to be through willpower. It can't be. Because the more willpower we try to put to it, the more we will find we are insufficient in our own strength to accomplish what God has called us into doing. It is only in him that you and I live and we move and we have our being. Now, his word is there to show us what is holy and good. It shows us our need uh, for a savior. It shows us our sin. The law is also there to reveal the failure of our own strength and our own strategies and to reveal that Christ is not only our savior, He is our Lord, and he is our life, our source of power. I titled this entire message series, Christ Our Life. And it comes from a passage here um, where it says, And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. Because for Paul, the Christian message in faith is about salvation. It's about having Christ as Savior. It's about bowing to him as Lord. But even more than that, it's about having Christ be the source and strength of our life every single day. It's why Paul can write later, I think it's in the book of Philippians. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The all things are everything God has invited him and called him to do. He can't do it in Paul. This is Paul. Like Paul's super smart and super committed and everything. Paul can't do it in his own strength. Neither can you and I. A verse that deserves more time some other time is Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 says, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a special people eager to do good works. What I want you to see here, a couple things. Number one, how we walk matters. How we walk matters. How, how we follow Christ matters. What we put our minds to and our, our lips to and our hands to, the things we engage in, Day in, day out, they matter to God because they 
play a very important role in shaping our Christian walk. But while the practical realities also matter, or while the practical realities matter, verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. Grace is not just a concept. It is a person. Grace is the power. A former mentor of mine used to say, grace is the power to do what God has called you to do. Rough paraphrase. And it comes through the risen Christ. The passage that says that we read today from Colossians Don't be focused on the shadows, focus on the substance. Grab on, hold on to the head. Paul says over and over throughout the scripture, you cannot do this on your own. Come to me. As Dr. Randy Smith says, again, the Christian life is the conscious act of knowing, loving, and inviting Jesus into the daily course of our life, allowing him to lead us through the day. We sang earlier, I am weak, but thou art strong. Paul knew what it was like to be weak. At one point in time, I think he's coming into the city of Corinth and he writes about this. He says, um, I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. There's a lot of things that we are weak on in our life. Weakness is God's canvas to be strong through us. What is our responsibility in the Christian life? Our responsibility in the Christian life is not to work in our flesh or in our own self-sufficiency. It's to deny our self-sufficiency and go to God for the strength we absolutely need for everything pertaining to life and godliness. The quicker we learn dependence, the sweeter the walk will be, which does not mean life gets easier. (laughs) It means we learn a whole new level of dependence and another whole new level of dependence. Are you weak this morning? Maybe you're not weak this morning. Maybe you need to come before God and you say, God, where am I striving in my own strength? If you're weak this morning, it's really easy to say, well, I feel weak. I need to pick this up to be strong. No, you don't. You need to go to the Lord. If you're strong this morning, you think you got everything figured out, be careful. (laughs) Because if you're going in the strength of you, that strength will eventually come crashing down. Rather, in humility, go back to God and say, God, I'm pretty strong in my own strength this morning. Would you teach me dependence today? Dependence, when it is on Christ, is never a bad thing. It's never a bad thing. Where are you weak? Where are you strong? Where do you need the strength and the grace of God himself to step in to your life right here and right now? Pray with me, please. Our Father and our King. How often, how often, God, I, I seek to find my identity and my worth in what I do or in what other people think about what I do. And God, I thank you that my worth and my identity is fixed 
in what Christ has done for me and in what Christ, in what Christ has said about who I am. Lord, would you reveal the lies to me and to us today that we believe that keep us from walking in that proper identity? God, would you reveal our self-strategies of seeking to find power apart from you? We thank you, God, that as we read last week, every one of our sins, if we are in Christ, is forgiven past, present, and future. We don't have to worry about the punishment of that. But God, we want to be faithful witnesses for you within the places to which you have called us. God, we need your help to do that. Teach us to deny all self and to cling to you, to hold to you, the one who is the substance of our faith. Jesus, we thank you for your death and your resurrection, showing that you have provided a way that we can be cleansed from all of our sin in a way that we can walk in newness of life. Be our Savior, our Lord, and our life today. For the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message, or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.